We're reading Ruth, chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also required Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Team, thanks again for uh, uh, bringing us our uh, reading. I might need that. Apologies. Uh, if you've not met, my name's Matt uh, Fuller. It'd be lovely to uh, do so afterwards. I can't help you with flower arranging, but I am the vicar. I have some use and um, be good to... Um, 
uh, good to say hi if we've, if we've uh, never met uh, beforehand. Now, um, if you are joining us tonight, we're Ruth 4. There's a lot of loose ends to tie up because uh, it's all been chaos so far in Ruth, but uh, wonderfully, uh, all ends well. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. A great God and Father, thank you that alongside clear, uh, legally argued, precise letters, you give us strange stories that we have to wrestle with and uh, wrap around in our heads and try and think what on earth is going on, but they get under our skin and they make us think and they reveal your ways in people's lives. Father, help us understand rightly what you intend us to take from uh, this passage and indeed this book of Ruth. And would we therefore recognize you as a good and kind Father? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, one thing you probably don't remember back in um, uh, the sort of bleak, bleak months of March, um, uh, it may, maybe you do, maybe it was the most exciting thing you did in March, but a census came around to a woo uh, once in a decade, census, woo-hoo, uh, and for some of you, it would have been the first time you'd have filled in the, uh, the form for your household. Um, it's not very exciting, is it? But um, one article uh, that popped up in the newspaper, um, 28-year-old, uh, it was doing it for the first time, uh, struck me. I, I ripped it out, held on to it. Um, he put it in these terms. The census reminds us we're nothing special. However unique we feel, most of us are unremarkable products of a particular moment in history. And uh, let me just read you his opening paragraph. The... Um, Filling out the census this week, I was confronted by the dispiriting realization that my life, which from the inside has always struck me as fascinating, original, and thrilling, makes for a decidedly boring series of data points. I doubt that Professor Sir Ian Diamond, the national statistician, will experience feelings of titillation or even curiosity as... Another white, heterosexual, university-educated, gamefully-employed 28-year-old man called James slides across his desk. What? I imagine him muttering jadedly to his secretary. Another one? Oh, how many Jameses are there? Just stick it in the shredder. Apologies if you are a James uh, here this evening. Don't take that personally. That's James Marriott of, of, of the Times. But he goes on to say... Because we all think we're the center of the universe. We all think we're magnificently and splendidly unique. But a census just reminds us, oh, you're born at a certain point. Well, to be honest, the things that you love and the things that you fear, you probably haven't chosen them. You're probably just a product of certain social and economic forces in the place where you happen to be born. He said, you look at the census data and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just one of them. And there's like 800,000 people identical to me in the country. Same views, same opinions. Oh, I'm, maybe I'm not unique. I'm not so special after all. I mean, if I dropped off the face of the, uh, the planet, Sir Ian Diamond wouldn't care. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dramatically affect his census data. I'm just another one in the run of Jameses and Janes and Matts, you know, 
an equally boring generational name. Half the people I know of my age are called Matt. Um, it just happens. It just happens that way. So, you know, it's just sort of sobering and sort of quite amusing as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as an article. He's saying, Sir Ian Diamond doesn't care about me. He just wants the big picture. Now, there's something soberingly useful about that. But actually, what's very wonderful when you turn to the scriptures is that the Lord is concerned with the big picture. He's concerned with the whole of the universe and what's taking place there. And he's concerned about you and knows you, and there's only one you in his eyes. And he can do both. But then he is God and see in diamond isn't. So let's not be too hard on our national statistician. Okay. It is extraordinary. But perhaps um, uh, the quote I just put at the beginning, at the bottom of the sheets, I, don't, I forgot to put it on the screen, but I put it on the bottom of the sheets of uh, one writer. I thought he summed it up very well. Sinclair Ferguson, God's providential purposes, that is his control over the whole of the universe, all the details, his providential purposes include me, but they do not center on me, as though what he is doing in me could be isolated from everything else he is doing. I guess a very helpful sentence. God's purposes in the whole of history, they do include me, and he knows precisely where you fit in. But to be honest, they don't center on you. They center upon Jesus. And sometimes it's just very helpful getting that perspective. Um, and we need to do so. And so as we come to our conclusion of the book of uh, Ruth, a month in this very lovely book, there are lots of little ends to tie up, lots of little ends, lots of loose ends to tie up. And God has a big picture. And he's still involved in the details of individuals. So if you have been here, uh, let me try and briefly recap. Chapter one then, uh, Naomi and her husband and uh, children, off they went to Moab. That was foolish. It's a wicked place. And they're walking away from the Lord. And it was a disaster. Her husband died. Her first son died. Her second son died. And eventually she came back to Bethlehem in Judah and said, well, I went away full. I've come back empty. God has taken everything from me and I'm very bitter. Uh, the only thing she did come back was her daughter-in-law, Ruth. At the beginning of chapter two, they are destitute. They got nothing. And so uh, Ruth goes off gleaning. Um, that is a sort of a social work, essentially, um, uh, to a benefits work, to pick up some food. In, and as the writer puts it, it just so happens she ends up in the field of Boaz, who is a distant relative and has the capacity to uh, sort out all their problems. But he is, before he even realizes that, wonderfully kind to them. And uh, uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi, they're provided for by Boaz, the redeemer, the hero in many ways of uh, the book of Ruth. Chapter three, Ruth says to Boaz, now you're my relative, you could sort out everything in our life. Will you marry me? This is a fairly bold uh, proposition she puts to him. And, she, and he says, yeah, I'll marry you. It's just one problem. There's another relative who's in line first. And so, like, if he wants to marry you, we, I can't. So let's see what happens. That's sort of where we got to. There's a bit more details about the land, but we'll look at them when we go through. So last time, uh, chapter 3 ended on a cliffhanger. Boaz promises, you and your land will be redeemed. Oh, let me say it now then. Uh, 
Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they owned land in the promised land. It's not just a place to grow your peas and grain. Um, It's your stake. It demonstrates that you have an inheritance. You're part of God's land and his promises. But, I think we'll see, they'd sold it. And so, what can you do about that? They need a relative to redeem it, buy it back for them. It has to be a relative to do that. Boaz could, but there's another one on the scene. So as we go through it, we'll see that Ruth and Naomi, in one sense, they're nothing special in God's plan. And, and they're very precious to him. In many ways, like you and me. We're nothing special. We're not the center of God's plan. And we're very precious to him. Let's work through it. We're going to go through it like this, the the three uh, characters, as it were. Ruth. Ruth is redeemed at cost to Boaz. Then Naomi is restored by the love of Ruth. And then finally, the Lord. The Lord had a greater plan in all of this. We'll work through them. First, in the first uh, 12 verses, Ruth is redeemed at a cost to Boaz. So at the end of chapter 3, Boaz has said, okay, well, let's see if I can redeem you. And if I can't, the other relative will. You'll be redeemed, Ruth. And he's a good bloke, so he cracks straight on with it. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there. The town gate's the city gate. That's where legal decisions are made. There's little seats there. If you want to have a sort of legal transaction of some kind, you go and sit down and you sort of, well, isn't that wonderful timing? He sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he'd mentioned came along. Well, would you believe it? Once again, the Lord is overseeing things and bringing things together. This other relative, he gets no name. That's deliberate, I think. So we're just going to call him Mr. So-and-so. Um, James has had enough bashing. I almost called him James again, but I thought, poor old James. Um, we'll call him Mr. So-and-so. Okay. So Mr. So-and-so comes and sits down. What happens? Boaz said to him, come over here, my friend, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down. And so he went and sat down. And then Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit there. And they did so. Because you need witnesses if there's going to be any legal transaction. But Boaz, he's a good guy. He's a man of action, clearly. Verse 3 is a bit tricky to translate. Then Boaz said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, pause. I don't want to perform smoke and mirrors in front of you. And if you're a Hebraist, you can go away and check what I'm saying. But the way the Hebrew works, is selling, you could equally translate it, it's a perfect verb, you could equally translate it, has sold. Now, to my mind, that makes more sense than the present tense she is selling. If she had land to sell, why was she so destitute at the beginning of chapter 2? And if she's got land to sell, anyone can buy it. It doesn't require a redeemer. If she's already sold the land to, I don't know, property developers, um, whatever, um, the property developers, only a redeemer can buy it back. So it, it makes just more sense of what's... You don't have to tr- take it that way, but from, to my mind, it makes more sense, okay? She sold it previously. Maybe they sold it before they went to Moab. They sort of packed up everything. And we don't know the details, okay? But it requires a relative to redeem it at this point. Mr. So-and-so clearly looks upon this 
as an exciting proposition. So uh, verse 4, Boaz says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, do so. I'm interested. But if you're not, tell me. So I'll know. For no one has the right to do it except you. I'm next in. I'll redeem it, he says. Um, It's sort of the man says straight away. It's just two little words in Hebrew. Yep, I'm in. Yep, I'm in. Um, This is some element of enthusiasm demonstrated by the uh, Mr. So-and-so. Oh, at this moment, as readers of the story, we've got some sort of emotional interest in the plot. Like, oh, that's rubbish. That's like a rubbish ending. It's like one of those films that ends on a, oh, um, ha-ha, Boaz is not finished. Verse 5, Boaz said, just to let you know, on the day you buy the land or redeem it from Naomi, you'll also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Verse 6, this, the guardian redeemer said, well, I can't redeem it then because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot. Okay, pause. What's going on here? Uh, what's, what's going on? If Mr. So-and-so buys the land, and with it, he, with the land, gets Naomi. We already told she's an old woman. She's past childbearing age. So he buys the land. It's his land. If he buys the land and gets Ruth, acquires, is responsible for, takes care of Ruth. Ruth, we're told, is a young woman. He would legally be obliged in buying the land to also marry Ruth. She may have a child. If she has a child, Ruth's child is called Marlon's son, her dead husband, not Mr. So-and-so's son. And then Marlon gets all the land. So the sort of scenario where Mr. So-and-so says, yeah, I can get this land. It's good land. I'll buy it for a million quid. I'll redeem it back for a million quid. And he makes a bit of money from it for two years. Then he has a son. And Ruth says, his land now. See ya. Um, and um, he gets no more. You could spend a million quid on this land and get nothing from it. And he says, well, I don't want to do that. That could bankrupt me. Um, if I sort of take out a mortgage and buy this extra bit of land. I know I'm meant to do it, but yeah, I'll stuff all that. As, you know, it's too costly, too risky. That could bankrupt me. I'm out of here. And so all of a sudden, his enthusiasm completely dissipates. Then verse 7 and 8, you get these uh, fascinating details about legal transactions in Israel and uh, sandal removal. Come back to that. Um, but then you get the, the, the conclusion. Verse 9, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you're witnesses, and we get that two more times, verse 10, verse 11, your witnesses, that I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon, Elimelech, dad, Kilion, Marlon, the two sons. I've acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow as my wife. Here's why, verse 10. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name, Marlon's name, will not disappear from among his family, or from, or from his hometown. Today, your witnesses. He says, I'm doing this so that Elimelech and his son, Marlon, their name carries on. 
It's not the most romantic of reasons given for marrying someone or a property deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's why he says he's doing it, because he's a good man. Well, the elders certainly think so. So they say, verse 11, the elders and all the people at the gate say, we're witnesses, 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 witnesses. Uh, May the Lord, uh, two blessings, two blessings for you, Bowers, we hope. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Okay, that's an odd sort of thing. Um, Don't use it in our wedding services. Um, Who together built up the family of Israel. Rachel and Leah, from them the 12 tribes of Israel come. So this is quite a big deal. This is like, Hey, Boaz, we hope that you and Ruth, that your offspring do something pretty amazing, like create a whole nation that God blesses, like Israel. It's quite a big thing. And um, secondly, that you may have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in, um, in Bethlehem. Standing, same word we have numerous times, Worthy, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 11. He is a worthy man. She is a worthy woman. Would you have been known as a worthy Boaz? Okay. <laughs> Why do we have all this here? As I look around the room, one or two of you are professionally interested in property law, but not in your social life. And the rest of us, less excited by property law. Why Why is this here? All these details. I mean, you could, um, if we've got the slide, you could easily go from um, chapter 3, verse 11. Ruth has asked Boaz to marry him. Boaz, will you marry me? And he says, yes. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do all you ask. You could happily go to first four, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That would be fine. Will you marry me? Yeah. Let's get married. Great. But in between, we have this, this like, what um, is really boring. I mean, sorry. Uh, but like, oh, you know, do you want the property? No, yeah, I'll have the property. Or well, hold on, I don't want the property. Okay, how did they exchange the property? Well, but in those days, well, the, let me tell you about the legal process in Israel and removing your sandals. And you're like, yeah, sandals, that's what I read the Bible for. Why? It's like a whole chapter's worth of... Yeah, yeah. The whole story slows right down. Why? But I think two things, two reasons. The first implicit, the second I think fairly explicit in the text. The first reason is this. Because life is messy, and it often feels like that. It isn't sort of, you know, and then the next thing happened, and then the next thing happened in my life, and then the next thing happened. There are often for all of us periods of bewilderment. Months of anxiety. Years where life is just on hold and nothing seems to happen. And we catch up with friends. Hey, what's new? Nothing. Oh, that's life. Life is often like that. There are obstacles, and it doesn't run smoothly to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. There are just periods of, what's all this about? Why am I, what's all this? Why am I going through this? I think that's one of the reasons it's here, it seems to me. 
The second, so life is messy. The second, I think, is it more explicit in this text that this is costly as a redemption for Boaz. That's why I think we're given Mr. So and so. He says, Yeah, this is, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. It's risky and it may bankrupt me. It's really costly to buy back this land and the associated responsibilities with it. I don't want to do it because it endangers my finances. It endangers my estate. By contrast, Boaz says, yeah, anyway, whatever, I'll do it because it's the right thing to do. But I think we're given Mr. So-and-so and all these details to stress it costs Boaz. It's not straightforward. I think that's why it slows right down. So we don't just think, oh, it's a lovely story. Older man meets younger woman, you know, sweeps her off her feet. No, it's not that. It's this is, I'm taking on a whole family. I'm taking on a lot of responsibilities. And it's risky. It's costly. And for those of us who are Christians, sometimes perhaps we need to slow down and remember that redemption is costly. Because you and I can think, yeah, 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 I know, we've sung already, Jesus has redeemed me. Yeah, 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 I know that, known that for a long time. Hold a minute, slow down, don't forget. 1 Peter 1, 18, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Jesus. It was costly. Slow down, see the cost. Go to Gethsemane. It's not straightforward. I think that's why it's here. So look, there's Ruth. Ruth is redeemed at cost to Boaz. That's the first. Let's pick up the pace. Uh, Naomi, secondly, verses 13 to 17. Uh, Naomi is restored by the love of Ruth. Verse 13. So, nine months well, no, not quite. But anyway, we're essentially nine months later, I guess. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. That's quite a lot of uh, time has passed. But we're also in a different place. The first bit of the chapter, we're at the city gates with a load of blokes talking about property sale. Uh, now we're in the home with the women and they're talking about personal details. For Naomi. Verse 13, Boaz and Ruth, that's it. They're now off the stage after verse 13. And the little concluding story, let's go back to Naomi. We began chapter one with Naomi. We're going back to Naomi. Ruth and Boaz, we're done with them from verse 13. The Lord is at work explicitly. He enables Ruth to conceive. She gives birth to a son. And the women, they function as some sort of chorus, I think, uh, to explaining what we're meant to take from this. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, verse 14, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. I think at this point, the, the kid, the kid who's been born, who will be able to work the land and provide for Naomi in, in her old age, the kid that, who's been born. May he, the kid, become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age, renew your life, restore your life. Um, it's the language of Psalm 23, his goodness restores my soul. This child will do that. You've got a kid in the family. 
So the women make the point, you can praise the Lord, Naomi. Chapter one, when we last met the women, who sort of function as a chorus, they, they meet with Naomi, the women. They, um, chapter one, they met her, and she says to them, I'm very bitter. I went away full. I've lost son, excuse me, husband, someone, son too, and now I'm empty. I'm very bitter. The Lord has emptied me. Now the women say, huh, praise God, you're full. The Lord has restored your soul. I mean, he's been filling up Naomi throughout the book. Food, first of all, this language of uh, Boaz saying, take all this food back to your mother-in-law Naomi, she'll be full. Now a child in her arms. By the time you get to verse 16, Naomi took the child, the lad in her arms. The last time we get that word is chapter 1, verse 5. Her two lads died. So Naomi's filled up again. But let's be a little careful here. Here's, here'd be a wrong thing to say. Here's what not to learn, I think, from that. Don't say, well, look, Naomi lost everything uh, in chapter 1, and uh, God has given her everything back again. So that was all fine. It's all fine. Don't, don't, don't say that. Because that... Um, that belittles the pain of loss. That ignores 10 years of hurt. That rides rushshot rush over her husband died, her firstborn son died, her remaining child died. And you, time doesn't undo those losses. You never undo the grief of loss. You can adjust, but you never undo it. So we mustn't read this and think, well, she lost everything, but she got it all back, so it's all fine. No. No, you never get that in this life. Nothing in this world erases the pain of loss completely. Nothing. Just don't expect that. What do I think you should take from Naomi being restored, her, her, her soul being restored in this sense? You can say this, praise God, that even in the darkest of nights, even in the misery and bitterness of Naomi's life, the Lord never left her. She recognized that, if you remember back in chapter two, huh, the Lord hasn't left me. The women here, praise to the Lord who's not left you. He never left you, Naomi. Yeah, times were hard. Yeah, grievous blows you suffered. But the Lord has promised, and he promises all believers, Hebrews 13, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will never do that. And you can even now restore your soul. That does not mean erasing the grief of loss. But he can bring you to the point where you carry on and you praise him again. He can restore your soul. And one day, when we stand before him in glory, at that point, everyone can say, Lord, you do all things well. 
you are no man's debtor. Whatever I suffered um, during my life on earth, it was a light and momentary trouble compared to this weight of glory. You have hyperabundantly filled me up beyond anything I lost. We'll say that then. Naomi's restored by the love of Ruth. Do notice how that has come to her, though. It has come by the love of Ruth. So just in the middle of verse 15, briefly. Um, uh, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. It's the only time we get that verb in the book, the verb to love. We're never told that Boaz loves Ruth or Ruth loves Boaz. We are told Ruth has loved Naomi. We're told that much. Wonderful. Ruth has been the, the mechanism, the, the, the channel of all blessings that have come to Naomi because of her love. Love in the sense of faithfulness, sacrifice, constancy, always there. Do, do you remember uh, back in chapter one, if you were here, Ruth says, I'm going back to um, Bethlehem and Judah with you, Naomi. And Naomi says to her, well, don't do that. If you come with me, Ruth, you will not get married. You will not have children. You come with me, you'll be without any family. And Ruth says, maybe, but I will love you. I am with you. I'm willing to take that risk, pay that cost to love you. Ruth is the source of all blessings. Now, some, some know that. Some here could probably say, not love for Naomi, but love Love for the Lord Jesus has meant it is less likely I marry. It is less likely I have children. I, I think, maybe, because of my love for him. And this book is not saying it'll all work out for you like it did for, for Naomi. It's not saying that. But it is committed to saying that is always worth it. Love for the Lord is always worth it. It's very striking. What's this book called? Duh. Ruth. Why is it called Ruth? I mean, Boaz is, in many sense, the hero of the book. He redeems them. He's the sort of figure like Jesus. Naomi sort of begins and ends the book. It's her narrative arc. Ruth just sort of appears in the middle. It's really all about Naomi. Why is it called Ruth? I think because she is the source of the blessings for Naomi. The role that she plays is significant. It's God's work to restore Naomi, but Ruth is the means. Naomi is restored by the love of Ruth. Last, last, briefly, uh, the Lord had a greater plan in all this. The Lord had a greater plan in this. So verse 17, the women living there said, Naomi's had a son. And uh, the uh, narrator says, yeah, enough of that. What you need to know is this. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And they get this genealogy. And then again, it concludes, the book concludes, Obed is the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Ruth begins in the time of Judges. It's the worst point in Israel's history. It's in the deer, they're immoral, they're disgusting, they're disgraceful. And the problem we're told is there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit. The book ends, the king is coming. David, Israel's greatest king, is coming. 
our focus throughout this has been on the lives of a handful of individuals. The Lord has been arranging things so that his king could come, who would transform the world. David would come, who would lead the nation. And David's descendant would be Jesus, who'd save the world. God's plans involve Ruth and Naomi, but they are not at the center of them. James Merritt observes, the census reminds us we're nothing special. The Bible would put it differently. You and I are not at the center of God's plans, but we are involved in them. And he does all things well. And so as the Lord is bringing all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ, as he arranges the whole of history with Jesus at the center, and it's all moving towards him, uh, reigning over everything demonstrably. Because he loves his people, even though that's the plan, our role, he's still working out all things for our good if we trust him. It's amazing that he can do both. And of course, you, read the, you finish this book and you think, of course, Naomi never met David. Ruth could technically, I guess, just about have met him, but certainly wouldn't have seen him become king. So if, thought experiment, a silly one, if, uh, imagine you arrive in heaven, and uh, while you're getting your um, magnificent food, uh, you happen to bump into the queue and you say, oh, hello, what's your name? My name's James, yes, I know. Um, uh, and, you, and then you meet, you and then, and then what's your name? Ruth, oh, hello. Um, you know, when were you born? When were you on planet Earth? Oh, no. oh you're not, you're not like... The Ruth, are you? Um, I am the, the Ruth. Amazing, amazing, amazing. She, yeah, it is it's crazy. Because I was just like going about my life. And it was a bit miserable. And my husband died, and father-in-law died. And husband died, and all these things. And I met Boaz. And that was great. And, you know, and we had this son. And, you know, that was fine. And our life was fairly uneventful as far as I was concerned. And then I find out, like... My grandson is King David, the greatest king of Israel. And then I, you know, but that all happens after I'm dead. And then I find out from him, the savior of the world comes. I had no idea. I was just like picking up some grain in a field. <laughs> Met an old bloke. He turned out to be really nice. And look what happened. <laughs> I had no idea what God was doing. And that is true most of the time for you and me. You have no idea how much takes place in your life and mine. And we're absolutely bewildered by it. And we have no idea that actually the Lord has got highly significant purposes. We've got no idea what's going on. Can you imagine you, that you meet Ruth in heaven and you're chatting to and then, I mean, this is getting, but Jesus walks by, as he does, and um, uh, Ruth says, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, there he is. I had no idea that my role, had, and Jesus just sort of turns and says, yeah, but Ruth, you were faithful. That's what you got right. You loved. That's what you got right, sacrificially, your mother-in-law. You're faithful, and that's what lasted. And who knows? Who knows? You and I will get to heaven and we'll see some sort of crazy timeline of things and think, oh, look, look, that happened. And I was involved in that. I had no idea. 
And Jesus says, yeah, but you were faithful. That's all I required of you. You were faithful. The Lord had a greater plan in all of this. So you get to the end of Ruth and marvel at the kindness of God and see him working out his plan. Of course, I'm fully conscious that for some, that is hard at the moment. And life is hard. And you feel bitter and you struggle to see any kindness of the Lord in your life. All those of people you love. Yeah. Well, maybe in time you'll see more of the Lord's kindness. Maybe now is a moment to slow down and look at his costly sacrifice, which does demonstrate that he loves you. It does demonstrate his kindness. Maybe others are a bit more like Ruth. Right now is a time when we can be a source of blessing. We can be a source of kindness to others, showing them how good the Lord is. I don't know where you're at. But for all of us, look to the kindness of God. He's demonstrated it supremely in the work of Jesus Christ. You can find it there, even if you're struggling to see what's happening now. Let me lead us in prayer. A great God and Father, we thank you and praise you that we have more reason than the women who knew Naomi to say, praise God. You've never left us nor forsaken us. You have sent your son into this world to die, to redeem us, not with expensive things such as gold and silver that tarnish and fade, but with the very, very precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ we are redeemed. Would we be able to look at him, if nothing else, and see your kindness and trust you? We ask it in Jesus' name.